You got the king right there, brother. If you want to use, if you want some of that, make sure you crack it open now because it's not open. Oh, I feel that. Is open. that yours? <laughs> yeah, I brought it. Yeah, open it. <laughs> I feel like I always cost Kenny a thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> open that bottle. Every every time it comes over, I lose a thousand dollars. Hey everybody, this is episode 211 of Bourbon Pursuit. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny, and let's go through a little bit of the news. Woodford Reserve has announced the release of its newest permanent expression, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Straight Wheat Whiskey. With wheat as its dominant grain at 52%, followed by 20% malt, 20% corn, and 8% rye, this whiskey was created by master distiller Chris Morris. And Morris said that Woodford Reserve now has all four whiskeys as a part of its permanent family of brands. You have Woodford Bourbon, Woodford Rye, Woodford Malt, and now Woodford Wheat. The Woodford Reserve Wheat is 90.4 proof with a suggested retail price of $34.99 for a 750 ml. That's quite the segue into our guest today, but we'll save that here for a minute. It was just a few weeks ago, we talked about the Supreme Court ruling that lifted the ban on out-of-state retailers in the state of Tennessee that could potentially affect shipping across the nation. Well, I think we're about to start witnessing the start of the domino effect. A Louisville attorney recently filed a lawsuit in federal district court against Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin, Kentucky Attorney General Andy Bashir, and the executive director of the Alcohol Beverage Control, Norman Arflack. This complaint argues that the law is unconstitutional because, as we've said before, it violates the Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution because, by quote, it discriminates against out-of-state wine retailers engaged in interstate commerce. It also argues that it violates the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, Section 2 of the United States Constitution because it denies non-resident wine merchants the privilege of engaging in their occupation in Kentucky on the terms of equivalent, those given to the citizens of Kentucky. And that's all according to this lawsuit. We are going to continue to pay very close attention to see how this plays out in other states in the upcoming few months. On Monday this week, we got to take a trip over to Cox's Creek with a few of our Patreon community members and select two barrels of Four Roses. The team came together and selected a nine-year, six-month OBSF and a 10-year, six-month OBSK. We're really looking forward to getting these barrels out to our community sometime in September. We also selected a new riff barrel once again. You know, if you want to see more about all the perks that are offered by supporting this podcast, like going with us on barrel selections, please do us a favor. Go to patreon.com slash bourbon pursuit and get more information. Now, if we rewind the clocks back to around February of 2018, all the fellas from the Bourbon Community Roundtable, we met up in Frankfort, Kentucky to select a barrel of Buffalo Trace. What happened next with that said barrel is the next part of this story. When you have a used bourbon barrel, you want to repurpose it. And what better way to do that than letting it age with some delicious Imperial Stout. We teamed up with Third Turn Brewing and did just that. We aged a stout at 12.2% ABV and let it rest in that barrel for an entire year. And now it's time to release it. 
On Friday, July 26th from 4 to 7 p.m., Ryan and I, we will be at Third Turn Brewing located in J-Town in Louisville, Kentucky. We want to share a pint with you. Please come on out and try this beer on tap. And if you really like it, you can take home a crowler for yourself to take home. We hope to see you out there. More information about that can be found on our Facebook page under the events section. Now, today's podcast was recorded a while ago when we were on site at Down One Bourbon Bar in Louisville, Kentucky. So if it sounds like we're recording in a bar, well, it's because we were. However, Chris Morris and Elizabeth McCall, they're no strangers of the show, and we're excited to have them back on once again. But this time, we're excited to hear them talk about the job of Master Distiller and how that title is earned through years of service and really how Brown Foreman is now laying the foundation for Elizabeth to take over when Chris is ready to retire. We also talk about the barrels that they have in their own cooperage, the char, and this week's Whiskey Quickie that aired on Tuesday, the King of Kentucky. All right, you've heard me talk long enough, so let's hear from Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Every week, I ask listeners to send me an idea for Above the Char. I get so many, but the one request I get most of all is, what do I think of rapid aging? This is the process that new distillers or chemists use to try and make bourbon faster. And I want to tell you, this has been going on for a very, very long time. In technology, they like to seek solutions for problems. And the fact is, making bourbon's biggest problem is the fact that making it right and making it tasty can take anywhere from four to 15 years. So if you're a businessman or woman and you want to make some money, it sure looks good if you can make a six-month-old bourbon taste like it's 15 years old. Now, a little history behind this. The Romans actually employed rapid aging techniques in wine. And in spirits, you know, the mid-19th century, we saw incredible amounts of people attempt rapid aging technology. In 1867, a Frenchman used a rotable wooden paddle to agitate barrels like a butter churn. Using a similar concept, the 1871 U.S. patented Pfeiffer and Richards apparatus placed barrels on roller slats in a heated room and agitated the barrels back and forth. The inventors claimed that this ripened whiskey within a few weeks. Several others hit the market in the 1870s to include a heat and motion device that offered practical value and utility. We'd also see ultrasonic radiations enter in the 1930s, and the Germans would do things like raise the ester content up to 120% in wine distillates. They also used ultrasound technology. By the 1960s, rapid aging fell out of fashion. It was not considered very satisfying. In fact, you would see distillers openly uh, speak out against this. Today, we have seen the rise of smaller barrels claiming that it's aged faster. We've seen People play heavy bass music to make the whiskey come out quicker. There's been chemical reactions. There have been uh, agitators very similar to, you know, mixing a paint can. There's been all these efforts to make whiskey faster. And I've tasted almost all of them. They all lack a certain depth, a certain mouthfeel, a certain flavor that makes you want to buy it. In fact, 
I'd say the thing that we should really look at here is, is there a problem with whiskey? And the fact is there is not. The problem is, is in the making money of whiskey. So as long as you, somebody could make money trying to figure out a solution to getting good whiskey to your doorstep, we will always see rapid aging technology. And I will always give it a shot, but I have yet to taste one that is better than even some of the worst craft distilled whiskeys. Rapid aging technology doesn't add anything to the quality of the whiskey, at least from what I've tasted. Instead, it strips out a lot of character and it doesn't have the time that's really required to be a good or great bourbon. So what's the old saying? If it's not broke, don't fix it. And let's face it, bourbon's not broken. And that's this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you have an idea for Above the Char, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. That's at Fred Minnick. Again, at Fred Minnick. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to NoseYourBourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to another episode of A Bourbon Pursuit, the first of the live podcast we're doing here at Down One Bourbon Bar in Louisville, Kentucky. Fred, Ryan, and Kenny back here uh, once again, and we this is a this is a new home. This is actually going to be pretty fun because uh, Ryan and I had a tasting here 
last week when we did this, but this is going to be a, a new adventure, bringing in a, a guest. Yes, I'm looking around and like, I'm remembering our first time we record a podcast. It was in my basement and like, <laughs> it was just me and you and a laptop and like, there was nobody there. And now there's like, like 15 people around us watching. There's all these lights. We got master distillers here. There's reserve tables, even though they're not for us, but people thought they <laughs> we're were. We're going like, to act like they're reserved It's for like us. kind of crazy, you know? It really is. And you know, Fred, this is, uh, how, how many times you've been to down one? It's a, it's a pretty uh, awesome. Many times I actually been here so often that I got my own cot back there in the closet if things get too far. <laughs> but this is uh, this has been a fun bar to kind of see it develop. Uh, there's been a lot of talent from Louisville uh, kind of come from here and go on to be uh, brand ambassadors for, for distilleries and go on to like uh, other opportunities. But this for me is, this is one of the places where I come in and I assess talent for, for things that I'm doing and they, they do a great job here. And of course they're connected to the Galt house or part of the Galt house family. And so uh, it, it never hurts from a, from a, a, a purchasing opportunity, you know, for a bar to have that kind of purchasing power to be connected to someone like the Galt House. So they, they get a lot of good things that uh, a lot of smaller bars don't. And hold on, I want to know about this scouting report like <laughs> of talent. Like, like, are you like an NBA scout, you know, going around? Like- well, I, you know, as, <laughs> as you know, Kenny and Ryan, I, I, I do a lot of uh, festivals and uh, I'm also on a lot of education committees for, for, uh, for, you know, cocktail conferences. Okay. And, I, and I try to do things. I try to create content for live festivals. And, and I usually have to tap into to bartenders. And bartenders have to, in my opinion, uh, from a career perspective, they have they are a lot like an NBA player. Yeah. And like some people come in or they're like really great for two years and then they're gone. Some people come in and they're, they're great one and for done. 10 so that's years. They're the one and done to the cocktail world. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It's true. Like uh, bartending talent is, is, is something that um, from an education perspective, you have to scout. You have to find the people that will you know, put on good seminars and can actually make a daiquiri and a, a grony and an old fashioned and a Manhattan. Don't they don't they serve the great Chris Morris the right way, you know, <laughs> and, and don't give him the cocktail. Give, give him the right cocktail that. You know, he asked for. Yeah. Wait, a da- daiquiri's not a frozen concoction. It's amazing. The Jimmy Buffett singing. But but the daiquiri actually was not meant to be uh, a blended <laughs> concoction, although what? it's turned but into that. I do that. love the blended. Concoction I thought it was supposed to come in a plastic bottle, and you put in a margarita or a blender and <laughs> shake it up, yeah. and, and it's ready to drink. But <laughs> all right, Kenny's head's about to explode. We got to move on to the. Yeah, yeah so, why are we talking about daiquiri? Let's talk about Kenny, Chris, as you may know. Um, our, our friend Kenny here, he's a little, uh, he's, he's a little, a little tight. Chat with Ryan and I. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta he's take him off the guardrail sometimes he's and uh-huh. bring him, we gotta bring him back bring in and focus. In. But that's really what we're talking about today is not cocktails, but we are talking about bourbon. And most importantly, we're talking about Woodford Reserve. So today we have Chris Morris, the master distiller at Woodford Reserve, and Elizabeth McCall, the assistant master distiller at Woodford Reserve. And both of these people are alumni of the show. I believe mm-hmm. it was back in the episode 40s and episode 60s when when you two had made your appearance. So welcome back on. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Glad so, to have you back. Yeah, and, and to kind of get, get this kicked off a little bit, Elizabeth, I kind of want you to kind of give people another recreation of really what your role 
has progressed to since the last time you were on? Because you were in the lab, you were the head taster, I believe, uh -huh. and now you're assistant master distiller. So what what's yeah, what's I'm that look to like? Think back when we go back in time, as Chris's um, wonderfully made Manhattan. Um, made its way to him. Um, so when I last was speaking to you all, it was master taster and senior quality control specialist at Woodford Reserve, um, working production part of the time. And the other part of the time was working with Chris on innovation and of course, tasting batches and all of that. And it shifted to more focus on really getting in the weeds of trying to understand how Chris's mind works, um, which... Hold on, wait, have you figured that out? <laughs> Yeah, I have not figured out yet. He's kind of... Chris, I, do you know how your mind works? I respond to emails as genius. Yeah. <laughs> really. I do. He's so... He's being very embarrassed. But I, I really do because I, I won't ever be able to understand fully how his mind works and how he puts batches together and how he pulls in history and, and actual where is this the market going. I mean, all of that is very interesting, but I try to learn as much as I can. So I'm trying to just follow in his footsteps and learn that and that's just spending as much time with him as possible he gives me projects and he's like here the other day i'm like okay how do you build a new grain recipe and he handed me the book of corn and he's like i read this on a trip like that, one trip thing. like one the, trip. the book of corn yeah it has like all their like stories it's like, a, like a bible heritage. like a textbook on corn yeah there's a book on corn there's a book on corn and i mean that's the kind of thing it's that chris morris does when he when he thinks there's a the lot of book. conscious thought it's amazing, Kenny, but actually authors write things. You know? so, yeah, there's uh, a book on corn. Let me know when it turns into an audio book and I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> get on Audible. Or the you movie, know. the movie version, maybe? Yeah. yeah. So, go ahead. No, but that but that's a lot of what, I mean, trying to learn that. And then, of course, still learning in the production side of things. I, I, you can never, you'll never know everything. I still have a lot of learning to do in terms of um, getting my hands dirty at the cooperage and at other distilleries outside of uh, Woodford Reserve. Um, so my, and then education. I work with Chris and the team of other master distillers at Brown Foreman on educating our sales force and, and distributor folks on the whiskey category. So there's just lots of things, nuances that go into it. I got a question Expanding. for you too. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no. but like, so does a master distiller, do each different distillers have different styles or methods or is it more like plug and play or like what is Chris's style and what's yours or like how are they different or same or... Well, certainly in my experience, we see differences. We were talking with Fred before we stepped in this afternoon that each company has its own criteria for the job. There's no uniform, what is a master distiller, what is a distiller, it varies from company to company. And we're, of course, very proud to be the oldest spirits company in, in America, the, the uh, Brown Foreman parent company. So we think we know what we're doing. And I am the seventh in the history of the company. And um, Elizabeth is, is working away to number eight. But um, we have criteria that differ from other companies. But you do see a difference in style and interpretation. And of course, I, everybody knows my mentor, uh, my first boss in my whole life was Lincoln Henderson. And I'm very different than Lincoln. In fact, my palate is different than Lincoln. Near the end of his career, we would have arguments because I was tasting things he didn't taste and he would get upset. Um, sorry, that's the way it, it was because we know as people age, their sense of taste deteriorates. Um, so a younger person will have a better sense of taste. I know that. 
Um, Are so, you trying to say that you already kind of like see your inevitable coming? Is that is that what's happening? And you're trying to groom her to, to do that? Well, that's part of the process. One of my key roles today is to develop Elizabeth um, to succeed me. So that's part of our Brown Fullman process, passing on the mantle from generation to generation so that nothing changes. Wink, wink, things will change because Elizabeth is not Chris. Yeah. I wasn't Lincoln. But we got a ways before we see that change, right, Chris? Yeah. I hope so. Yes. Uh, but uh, not that I don't want Elizabeth to, I hope to, so too. to be there. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. But um, we're, we're having such a good time together. And we got our new master taster over here, uh, Katie, joining us tonight. Um, but th that's, that's just, if you're making 100% natural product with reserve is corn, rye, barley, or, or many whiskeys. It's limestone water, it's yeast, it's exposure to copper and maturation in an oak barrel. It's as natural as you can get. And as you put those batches together based on your perception of our standard, it will evolve. Because, again, we're all individuals. And I think that's one reason people will love a brand like Woodford Reserve. It is our collaborative interpretation of this product. And, again, it, it will change. But the changes are subtle. The changes are evolutionary. Uh, but the, the, the bottom line is it's, it's, it's a real product that somebody or some persons, a team, are putting together. It's not artificial. It's not manufactured. It's not a committee in, in, in some corporate office. It's real. Yeah. So yeah. is that like training manual? Is that something you do or is that something that, you know, Brown Foreman has like, like here's, an here's an how we want it done. And Chris is like, no, yeah, this, this is how it should be yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Like, so well, how does that kind of work in that process? Yeah, it's a book on tape, Brian. Yeah. It's an audible book. I of had, uh, I had produced for me or developed for me, um, the, that manual before it didn't exist. And when I was coming up, it was a, a guidepost for me, you know, sort of tailored to me. And uh, and that was back in 2000, 19 years ago. <laughs> and and I've taken those that original work as as we've evolved and developed, and I've tweaked it. And now Brown Foreman does have a professional development guide for master distiller which means assistant master distiller. We have a professional guide for master taster that both Elizabeth and of course Katie have gone through. Courses of instruction, experiences. Let's take a look at all that right do. now. Like, so you, you, you just talked about like all these manuals you have and, and all this effort that you put into the terms and titles, master distiller, master taster, assistant master distiller. When I can just go right down the street and get a diploma from a Moonshine University and then come out and start my own distillery. Or heck, I don't even have to go there. I can start a distillery tomorrow and say I'm a master distiller. You can watch some YouTube channels. I can watch you a know. YouTube channel and <laughs> yeah. say I'm a master distiller. And the old Ascot brand takes off from there. It, that's right. <laughs> Elizabeth shaking her head. <laughs> what in the world is happening to American whiskey right now where you have one company who's going through all this effort for the titles of distiller. And then you have some random schmo wherever in the USA 
saying that they're a master distiller and they haven't done a lick of distilling. What's going on? Yeah, Elizabeth, I kind of want to get your take on that one well, because because you're you've been you've been trying to groom yourself for this role and you've been really putting years of effort into it. So yes, I, so I only have ten years in this industry, and which some people are like, oh my gosh, that's a long time. At Brown and then, Foreman, that's at, not long. At Brown Foreman, that's <laughs> just nothing. a baby. And and in this industry, in my opinion, that's not. I don't feel it's a long time. And I am very, very much, very proud. And I think you hear it when I talk about Chris is going nowhere, I hope, <laughs> anytime soon. Because I have a lot of pride in the fact that I'm assistant. And that in, implies a great deal of learning I still have to do. Um, and the respect I have for the title of Master Stiller. If they were to tell me tomorrow you're going to be Master Stiller, I would have serious issues with being called that. For Especially for a brand like Woodford Reserve or, or any of our Brown Foreman brands that have so much weight behind them. Um, it's just a title to me that I look to and I think of somebody like Chris Morris, who is a, it has lived and breathed bourbon and whiskey his entire life. And it's not just about running stills. Anybody can learn that skill. You really can. You think we anybody have, can run a still? Uh if you have the right manuals and you go out and you spend time training, now you can't just walk in off the street and do this. No. But can you learn? Anybody can learn how to do that. A lot of people can learn. Maybe not anybody. I think there's know? a lot of people in backwoods that have stills in the, in, <laughs> yeah. in the forest. Um, but, right? but, but I'm just saying that, that, that you can learn how to do these skills. And But there's time and in, in, in thought and um, experience that goes into something that really makes you want to believe that your product, like what Chris Morris, I mean, what he's done for Woodford Reserve is unreal. Like you look at the, like we sit down and we talk about things and we talk about brand planning. He introduced, like, was he there for the start of the actual bourbon? No, that was, he was with a different company at the time. But when he came in, we have rye, we have our master's collection that came out. You have our malt, you have wheat that's coming out soon. And that's not all out of just willy-nilly, like, oh, this would be fun. It's it's a lot of it is um, well thought out when you look at history and when you look at what's the plan. We, we talk about flavor with Woodford. And, I mean, that's his genius and experience in the industry that led him to that path and that guided vision for brand. And that takes nothing but time. I mean, time is something yeah. I think is so So important. I hear what you're saying there, like, with with – with branding and everything like that, I think we don't know as a society, when I, when I say society, I mean bourbon society, what a master distiller is. So, mm -hmm. Chris, I'll bring that to you. What is a master distiller? Because it meant something in the 1800s and the 1950s. It means something different today. What is a master distiller? Well, of course, there is no, there is no criteria... Uh, in terms of industry, there's no set of requirements. It, as I mentioned earlier, it varies from company to company. And I believe, Brown Foreman believes, um, number one, uh, you're responsible for the overall quality of the product that your name is associated with, the distillery you're associated with. And as Elizabeth said, that means a whole lot. If you're our colleague, Jeff Arnett at Jack Daniels, you're the master distiller of Jack Daniels. That's sort of important. Um, Woodford Reserve, my gosh, Old Forester, you know, those are important brands, not only to our company, 
but to the history of our industry. So there's there's a lot of gravitas there. There's a lot of responsibility. And also I think it means your brands that you have helped create and develop have won awards, are recognized as good brands. You're, you're a master of what? You're a master of a brand that is acknowledged to be of the utmost quality. If you haven't won an award, I don't know how you can be a master yet. But again, that's our opinion, not a global opinion of, of any degree. So again, But I think it's a nice baseline. I mean, Kenny, wouldn't you agree that it, it, it's at least a baseline for what is a master distiller? You have to have one of a, an award when you have so many. I don't know. Out. I mean, you kind of you kind of take the anti part of that, right? Um, I know that you're a you're a judge at San Francisco, and then you've got the other group of bourbon enthusiasts out there that say, "Don't don't take that as as gospel, right? You take that as as a as a way that you can start learning about a spirit or anything like that." But when you see gold or double gold, well, in fairness, I wasn't thinking about San Francisco <laughs> when I posed you that question. Yeah. I was thinking of of like best bourbon at San Francisco. Or I mean, the, I, I wasn't the thinking way, about can, one of the three medals there. I or, think that's what Chris was thinking too. Or I could but, just pay off the Forbes writer that I know. Yeah, cannot happen. Let me let me add um, maybe as a close to this, or uh, we continue. But uh, that's one thing Brown Foreman and the Kentucky Distillers Association, because this was de- this was a, a subject of discussion years ago uh, with the the membership. And we don't think any one company or organization um, can define or impose any restrictions on the rest of the industry. As Fred said, if a little startup distillery wants to call its whatever person master distiller, that's up to them. That's fine. Brown Foreman is not going to say you can't do that. It's not our job to impose upon, upon the industry our opinions. This is America. We don't do that. Um, so I think the ultimate, the ultimate, the bottom line is our brand speaks for itself. Does it taste good? Yeah, yeah. Are you making a good product? Good? Yeah. Does yeah. it taste good? I, I, think that, that. I think that's fair for, for the professional side. But now we're starting to see like this growth within like the bar community and everybody saying they're an expert um, about whiskey. And, oh, yeah. you, and, and, and Kenny brought up, you know, the judging competitions and what is best. There was just a, a gas station whiskey that won world's best whiskey. And I seriously question how that won, you know, and I'm a judge on a lot of those things. And I, and I know like people have to pay entry to get in that. So there, there could have been like a low point of entry. There not, might not have been a lot of it. But Chris, what do you think about like this rise of so-called experts that are tasting things and putting their names on on things and hosting podcasts and hosting podcasts but <laughs> hey no, we, right. full disclosure we always say and we you are not two the have experts never ever named a whiskey of the year you two have never done anything like that so like now we're we're in a situation where there are 1500 different uh you know whiskey sommeliers or experts or whatever and you know they're not coming from the ilk of, of Brown Foreman. And you may even think that I'm that too. But I'm curious as to what your thought is in terms of like the people who are taste and consider well, the tasters of the community. I would just be curious to know. I mean, for me, like, you know, we're tasting and we want to know quality. Do you know what are the all the defects you can find in bourbon whiskey distillate? 
And when you find them, like, can you describe, like, well, what do they taste like? What are those those defects? Where did they come from in the production process? How do you um, troubleshoot and work around that and get through all of that? And I guess is I it mean, important to know how to fix it, or is it just important to spot it as a taster? Okay, as a taster, you probably don't have to know that. If you're going to be a master distiller, you should you have to know how to do that. But, but a taster can't fix it because it's already there. Yeah, a case, yeah, you're tasting it at the end of the, you know, it's already out there. It's too late. I guess, but you could, maybe you could talk about, but if you're a taster, you should know, I don't know. I mean, well, well does this, as it, if it's in new make, does it stay in new make? What, it, what happens to that defect? Does it age out? Is it something that, and so if you're tasting it, something at new make, and then you're tasting something um, that's a finished product or maturing, how do you troubleshoot it on that end if you don't know where it comes from in the production process i don't know i i don't those things are important i guess because of my background yeah. and where that's i come from that's an interesting from. question or think you it, just you talked about how if it'll push through the age and yeah. kind of improve how how much does that like experience like with chris or you like you know that like what are those some of those notes i guess that you're like well that that's, this is gonna eventually work itself out yeah, that's where experience helps yeah but sometimes you're surprised either yeah positively or negatively. Um, but that's an interesting point that everybody's bringing up. Um, how has this person, this expert been trained? As Elizabeth said, we're professionally trained. We're trained, uh, we have PhDs on staff for professional um, uh, professionals in the sensory science. Elizabeth is a sensory scientist um, as her beginnings at Brown Foreman. Uh, we have sensory science consultants come and test us and work with us. So we, and these just aren't whiskey sensory scientists. They work for food, aroma only, like perfume companies. These are experts in sensory science. And so it surprises me and sometimes alarms me when we taste a whiskey and we note defects and a person critiquing that whiskey is just singing its praises. And you're like, there's these obvious defects in the whiskey. And this person either doesn't understand them, doesn't recognize them. Or and that's they, what they want in their whiskey. Or they like <laughs> defects. Um, and so things become more complicated, Fred, when, and I'm going to say when I started in the industry, because there was nothing like this in the industry. Yeah. But when early books, Gary and Marty Regan and... Uh, Way Mack and Harris and the, the legendary Michael Jackson um, are starting to write about whiskey when nobody was writing about whiskey. Um, it was a very tight sorority and, and fraternity of whiskey writers and everybody knew each other. And there weren't that many whiskeys. You know, there were a handful of bourbons, a handful of this and that. There was nothing that we see today, pre-micro distillery movement. And pretty much everybody was on the same page. You understood what you're talking about. Right. And as bourbon and rye and whiskeys have become popular and everybody jumps on, which is fun, again, it sort of dilutes the level of expertise. And I think today people, well, can be self-styled experts, but what is their, their base? So, again, we leave that to the consumer to decide. Mm -hmm. Uh somebody says something good about a, a brand, a glass of whiskey, try it. If you like it, good for you. If you don't, learn from it. Um, so we, we can't impose upon the entire industry our views. 
again, we just have to hope people pay attention to Woodford Reserve and what we're doing and, and go from there. So I kind of want to educate some of the, the listeners and the watchers out there because, you know, you've talked about and both of you have talked about trying to find defects and whether it's in new maker, whether it's in uh, aging whiskey. And, you know, today we, we brought these I'm going to put words or words in Elizabeth's mouth here. Uh, we brought our bourbon suit Copitas because last time we had talked, you said that Copitas were sort of the uh, the way that you like to use in the tasting room to kind of get the most flavors out of them because of the, the tulip shape and stuff like that. But I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. What if if there's somebody that's at home and they're listening um, and they want to try to understand what flavors to pull and what are those possible defects that they're buying or they're finding? No, of course, it's not going to be in a Woodford Reserve of Brown Corn product. It's not going to be in this double oak. It's definitely not going to be in this. But no. however, they're going to go and they're going to find some random bottle they never heard about. And they're going to buy it and they're going to taste it and be like, oh, what is this? So what are, what are those some of those of those flavors, those notes that you really think are the biggest defects that that any good massive distiller should be able to find. And before Elizabeth jumps in, uh, again, we, we're looking at two sides of the coin. The first four sources of flavor, which is our mantra of the five sources. What does the water, the grain, the fermentation, and distillation bring to the palate? So that's our new make, our new spirit. So we judge that. So it has a set of criteria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're looking, of course, you never look for good things because you, you assume the good things are there. So we do look for defects. And at that point, it's too late, unless there's a certain defect. We're saying, forget this. Mm-hmm. Um, but we want to know that defect is there as we barrel and then adjust as we go forward. But we use those defects and then go back into the distillery and say, something's not working here. Let's fix it because. Where do you go to first to fix it? Where do you like? Uh, this is probably the mostly the guaranteed the way it's, it's going to be the reverse engineering part of it. What's yeah. that like? You go to grain, you go to fermentation, you go to distillation. Yep. yep. One of the one of the three. The water, the water is going to be solid, and then we go into the wood, we go into the barrel for maturation, and then of course six, seven, eight years later, there could be different defects because now the wood character has come into play. Um, so it depends on where we are that we're looking for certain defects. Because as Elizabeth said, some of the new make defects can be overcome by maturation. They're still there, you just don't note them because mm-hmm. the wood has taken lead role. But you don't want them there in the first place. So we now have two places to adjust. New make means we adjust the distillery, but what's in what's there can't be adjusted but we can do that on a week basis. Years later, we adjust by batching barrels together. So we can fix what we have in front of us, except for one defect, which is unfixable, mm-hmm. and uh, and go forward from there. So batching becomes very important. You know, a couple of barrels of this with 98 barrels of that are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't like that. Depending but it's on go- the defect. <laughs> Depending on the defect. The right there's one, one bad apple makes them all bad. There's the one defect that you we, can't hide it. We can't hide. <laughs> yeah. And, it's and in, what is that? That's must. 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 Gotcha. Must. That's right. Jackie told us that. We probably got a little bit of that going on with all this rain right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of must probably going in those uh, non heat cycle. Yeah. Warehouses, yeah, or, or if you have a leaky roof, <laughs> or a leaky yeah. roof. I got. I want to switch oh. gears a little bit for oh, a second. Uh, 
Brand Foreman is such a dominant American whiskey company. And then the last, like, I'd say 10 years, there's been a, such a dynamic effort to pull in malts, like to try and do like, um, not necessarily a single malt, but some kind of like malt mash or uh, the five malt release from a few years ago. And I was, and I know your passion, you have so much passion for single malt scotches. You, you have a, you have a real like craving for those and sometimes Chris, but are we going to see uh, a stronger effort from Brown Foreman on the American single malt category that's just taking off? And I know we've had some releases of late, but are we going to see more of that? Yes, I'll let um, uh, Elizabeth talk about our particular product. But um, yes, I'm a big fan of single malt scotch. If that upsets anyone, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> He's not really sorry, yeah, folks. It, it, uh, and, and of course, Brown Foreman owns three single malt scotch distilleries, which we, Elizabeth and I, visited back in July. That We're just so proud of that. But um, uh I am the only Kentucky bourbon distiller who's a keeper of the quake. I'm the only Kentucky bourbon distiller who's been honored by the Scotch Whiskey Association, um, which I'm very proud of. So Scotch Whiskey, of course, is our is our ancestor. Uh, you know, the, the bourbon tradition is, uh, is the evolution of Scotch Whiskey evolving in Kentucky in the 1770s through the 1850s um, based on our environment. So we love we love that 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 touchstone of Scotland and Ireland are, is where our tradition comes from. But um, we released a master's collection, as, as as this group knows, and maybe many of the listeners do not know. We released a master's collection duo many years ago that was a hundred percent single malt, or hundred percent malt, I should say. Um, that was uh, our distiller's malt. It wasn't peated. It wasn't smoked. It was the same malt we make our wood reserve bourbon with. And we distilled that 100% malt fermentation and entered half of the volume produced and used wood reserve barrels. So they had held wood reserve bourbon one time. And then we barreled the other half of the volume we produced in new wood reserve barrels. And that became seasoned malt and new cast malt. Some silly name. I can't remember what we called it because we didn't want to call it single malt because at that time, if you said single malt, and probably to this day, if you say single malt, people immediately go it has to, a connotation. to, to yeah. Scotch about whiskey. about solo malt? Yeah. You know, some solo malt. Yeah. And, <laughs> Change um, up the verbiage. Un malt. And they weren't, <laughs> they, they, Uno's malt. they <laughs> weren't very popular. Um, because you know, I, 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 I remember the, some of those, like, uh, there was one, I, it was classic malt, right? Thank you for remembering yeah, the classic names. Malt. Yes. Right. Uh, I, I, um, and there was classic malt and there was straight malt. I, I can't remember which one I liked more. He has a yeah. good memory. So, yeah, but I, but I liked one of them more than the other. Classic was I, used. I bet you liked the, I liked the, um, the straight malt. I, New Cooperage. It might've been, but you know. I've always, um, and I wrote this in one of my reviews, and and I have to tell you, Chris, I've always appreciated the fact that if I've ever been critical of your stuff, you've never taken me to dinner and yelled at me for an hour. Like <laughs> I've never, I've never taken it to dinner. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Well, one of them, I was just like, what? And what? In that review set, I, the one that I didn't care as much for, I said, I wish they would do more focus on bourbon. Mm. And the thing is, is that you all are such brilliant bourbon distillers. I wonder why it is that there's such a fascin fascination for making malts work. Okay. Hmm. Well, so the malts came out. And of course, 10 years ago, who was buying bottles of Wood Reserve Masters Collection? Bourbon drinkers. <laughs> and bourbon drinkers don't drink scotch, by and large. And so it didn't go over very well. And I can understand that. They wanted bourbon. Uh, they wanted seasoned oak finish. They wanted Sonoma Couture Chardonnay finish. They wanted sweet mash. And we... Forward. Don't forget forward. forward and we sort of mm -hmm. let them down, which is the way it goes. Uh, but we learned a lot in terms of the process of making uh, malt-heavy whiskey. And um, in my bottom line learning was, going back to our earlier conversation of taste, these are sort of boring. Mm -hmm. These are sort of boring. 100% malt. Again, we don't have the smoky, the peaty characteristics of some of the European malt or Japanese malt. And we're not we're not aging for 20, 30, 40 years. And we don't have port pipes and cherry butts. It's, it was all American oak. And they were sort of boring. That doesn't mean that they didn't taste good, but they were sort of boring. And that learning leads to our new release of last year, Kentucky Straight Malt Whiskey which is a permanent member of our family. It will be coming back this late spring, early summer. And it's it's a member of the family. So Elizabeth- Has it been doing well? Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, it's been doing really well. We released it last June and um, it all sold out right away. I mean, people were like six months later, like, can we, are you making more? Like, what's the deal? And, you know, Chris and I get approached like, well, how could we make this, you know, get, get to the shelves a little quicker could we adjust something with our process or our quality? You know, yeah. now we're like, nope, can't do that. But we humored them and we put it. That's happened a little bit in the last. Oh, there's six a months, lot of pressure for that because like 1910 from Old Forester. There's a lot of pressure because people really like. We put out good products at Brown Foreman, if you didn't know, um, and people get excited about it. But you know, the job of a master distiller, you know, is to say no i mean chris's name is on that bottle so you know True. at the end of the day yep it, it's you know, when things go wrong they're like chris that was you know he's the one who has to talk about it um and so when with the malt it was very popular we did a kentucky straight malt whiskey and um we fought for it to stay at the process where we released it that we released it at and because the taste you even a year makes, I mean, that there's a time difference with aging. You know, you've got to let it go to what it should be. And I got so a question, not to interrupt, just because I'm clueless about malts. And, and I assume you're making these malts. Are you doing them in the col copper still or column oh, still? Or? Yeah, it's both. I mean, in it's, both, okay. It's both. It in is a, if we're going to produce something and put it under the distiller select, Woodford Reserve distiller select bourbon, rye, malt, wheat that's coming out soon is always going to be that that batching of column and pot still because that's so what the, makes uh, it. So the column from Shively and then the pots from uh, Versailles. That's, yep. Because we were tasting uh, some Kings County I was talking about. And it's a 80% corn, 20% malted barley. And we thought we were tasting like young, younger notes. And their distiller said, hey, that's not younger notes. That's our, our 
pot still mm -hmm. and it's creating like some different buttery farmy kind oh. of funky flavors and yeah, so they're, I like, they're still figuring it out yeah and so i was curious to get yeah. your take on that like you know funky is not one of our techniques no terms. we don't say funky but <laughs> okay no. no i was just but, curious but no so. i mean i think that i wasn't around at the beginning of starting our pot stills but from those that i've spoken to um figuring out how to run your pot stills is a challenge mm -hmm. we have gotten to a point with woodford reserve we've got it figured out um, done all the hard work over the years to figure it out. But the notes you get from a pot still are big, bold, oily notes. You see the grain come through more. I mean, Chris, if you wanted to add, I mean, that's, there's a distinct mm -hmm. difference between the two types of distinct. Funk is something we normally use in rum, you know, <laughs> like in Jamaica. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you. you don't you don't use it very often in whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, if you're going to, it's probably coming from a, a pot still. Yeah, you like gotta, a, a you low distillation level but, pot still. But here's here's a fun bit of our story, and I, Elizabeth will tell you about our recipe. Is one thing that I've drawn on from inspiration is the history and heritage of our industry in Kentucky, and certainly Brown Foreman's history and heritage, and. Uh, started research on malt, malting, malt whiskey in the history of Kentucky. And one thing, Brown Foreman has a tremendous archive, again, from the, the oldest spirits company in America, 148, 149-ish years old right now. We've got a wonderful archive, which is housed at the Fraser History Museum. And we have a, we have a complete set of the wine and spirits journals from, from the 19th and early 20th century, much less our own documents. And we find that there were there were malt whiskeys made in Kentucky before Prohibition. Brown Foreman had a brand called Marrow Malt, M-A-R-R-O-W. And when you look at the old Sanborn maps, which are diagrams, schematics of distilleries for insurance purposes, you'll see these at the University of Kentucky, at the Filson, their uh, University of Louisville, and of course in our collection, uh, we see that the original Brown Foreman distillery had a malt floor and a malt kiln. We were sort of, we were a Scottish distillery in the 19th century. And that's incredible. And that in the history of our state, the first malt house, and remember, we don't have a malt house in Kentucky any longer. The first malting operation in Kentucky, 1785, before we were Kentucky, is in Woodford County. So I thought, what better Provenance than a Brown Foreman brand made in Woodford County to be what is now the only Kentucky straight malt whiskey on the market. Our Woodford Reserve malt is the only one of its kind. Very cool. That may be true, but folks crave the bourbon. And as they did, <laughs> as they did back then, it all then, comes back to bourbon. They yeah. crave the bourbon. <laughs> Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns. 
from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. That may be true, but folks crave the bourbon. And as they did, <laughs> as they did back then. It all then, comes back to bourbon. They yeah. crave the bourbon. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I, I, I it, it's well, hard for malls to stand out. No, no, I agree good. with that. But so Woodford Reserve is the home of innovative whiskeys. First and foremost, like that's the big thing for us is that we can we have the with what our distillery, we have the ability to be flexible and to play with. Grain I'm sorry, but hold on, folks. Let's just have a moment for King of King Kentucky. Kentucky. I am. This is good. Yeah, it is so good. Uh, Chris Morris again. His name's on the. This is probably my. uh, This is probably my seventh bottle. Every single one of those labels too. And every every (laughs) one of these is like, oh man, it's just like a trip down like Great Whiskey Row. Mm -hmm. Holy shit balls! (laughs) I'm glad I could bring that to me. At least you let me open it with some good. Uh, There there is so there is so many complicated notes in this. It's I don't even. Yes. And this was one of my this was one of my top whiskeys of the year last year. Yes, and you, you know, the craziest thing is I, I went into like a blind competition. This was like my front runner to win it. But you know how blind tastings go. You just you yeah. just never know how it's gonna go. But yeah, this is surprise you. It's so good. Mm-hmm. You mean Thank it, you. It's so good. Kenny, I'm gonna what get do us back about I'm this? gonna get us back on the on the rails here is what <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> do here, gone. okay? Because you were, he kind of interrupted her because she was kind of talking uh, a little sorry, bit about. I'm sorry, I apologize about the, the malt recipe because <laughs> how bourbon like it is. <laughs> well, because it, Way to go, she started, she started going down. Hey, the path. I love bourbon. What can I say? That's, yeah. that's is that wrong. Fine. Yeah, well, as, no, so, as he's drinking a beer. But so what but, I was saying is that we're the home of innovative whiskeys, and so we do a lot of really fun things. And uh, you know, with the, with our malt whiskey, we are 51 percent malt, 47 percent corn, and just two percent rye. So we're right close to that bourbon requirement you know 47 percent corn you know we're it's really the gateway good. malt it, it yeah. is a gateway malt but the thing <laughs> is is that yes it's a gateway malt but who really knows you know what what is american malt at this point in time we're still defining what that really means it's not well, what a was the marrow malt or do you know the recipe of that was that in it. your corn book no. <laughs> pick up a glass of woodford <laughs> Okay. So, what Very is American cool. malt? There's so, actually an incredible debate about that, and I think exactly. the greatest malt producer in this country is uh, Lance Winters from St. George. Mm-hmm. He's been making uh, American malt, you know, since the '90s or thereabouts, legally. But it's not a category. I mean, to your point, like it's not a category. It's not something that people are really seeking out. So, why why do we produce these things? If bourbon is is Woodford's big thing, why are we producing? Why are we introducing wheat? We're yeah. introducing why, wheat. Why are something. you introducing why these things? Why are we things? doing this? Makes no sense. We are flexing the mus- muscle of the fact that Woodford Reserve is the home of innovative whiskeys and we can play in flavor. It's all about flavor. So you look at our Woodford Reserve Distiller Select product and it's balanced and complex. You can find 212 flavors in a glass of Woodford Reserve bourbon. But Name them all. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> start, start with the A's. Yeah. Yeah, start alphabetical order. Go. But then you get into them. Acetyl, acetyl. Oh, there we go. Sorry, no. we'll start with the A's. Okay. Um, 
but then you know you look at and and everything is done with purpose. I told you earlier, Chris Morris is a genius when it comes to um, bourbon and understanding it. And when we're planning out Woodford Reserve, it's not just all willy nilly. Like, oh, wouldn't it be fun to do a mall? How cool! <laughs> Nobody else is doing it. Let's do that. No, it is thought out because you look at we got our distiller select bourbon, which hits all five areas of flavor. Then you have our our double oaked, which came out in tw- 2012. It's sweet aromatic forward. It hits that we we want you to know, we want you to taste sweet aromatics. Then we've got our rye, which is spice forward, trying to hit that area of flavor. Then you've got our malt, which is those grain wood notes coming through. And then with our wheat, we'll complete it with our, our fruit forward notes. But then also going back to 1939, when they established, the TTB established, what are the four types of American whiskey? Bourbon, rye, malt, wheat. We're hitting all those. So not only are we covering flavor, but we're also looking at it from a historical standpoint as well. Yeah. And you're doing a lot of the Perfect. experimentation that hopefully bourbon geeks are really trying to yeah. trying to harness in on because you do it, you do it, you know, the you have the standard, you've got your double oak, but then you also have your distiller select series, right? Mm-hmm. These these sort of one-offs that people really kind of they gravitate towards because it's it's something you new, it's something unique. What's been the the latest one that has come out that that sort of uh, garnered some attention? Well, the latest one is our good old favorite. Oh, what? Double, 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 double oaked? Okay. Double, double. I didn't know how many doubles were on now. Double, double. It's just double, double. It's it's double oaked, but aged for instead of the 12 month, 24 months. But man, I mean, it's it's a totally, it shifts the flavor profile completely from our double oaked. And people are obsessed with this. Mm-hmm. Say, how many, how many, when you start taking over, how many doubles are going to be on this? <laughs> Well, I, I just want to interject here. Like there, there was, I got my, Chris, you know the story. I had my wisdom teeth taken out one year. and I like where this is going. I, I could not, after, for like three months, I couldn't taste anything. The only thing that I could taste from a, like that I could assess was double oak and double, double oak. And I, it is one. I think barrel finishing is the hardest thing to do in American whiskey right now to put out like a really good product because you can screw it up so easily. And what they have done with double oak and double up, double double <laughs> double, yeah, double double oak. Yeah, I was gonna say we're getting tongue tied. It over is here. so hard to do. And I know I am sure you guys went through a lot of batches to get that flavor right. But my God, is it! Does it feel like a dessert on the palate? Oh, that's... Oh, does it feel like dessert? Well, thank you, Fred. Now, to Fred's point, barrel finishing has been around for quite a long time. Give uh, Dr. Bill Lumsden, who I'm very familiar with, at uh, Glenn Morangie as the the modern father of, of barrel finishing back in the early 90s. But when... All of us, because we've finished, we've finished with reserve, as you all know, in our master's collection in Sonoma Gutierrez Chardonnay barrels and Pinot Noir barrels. We didn't make those barrels. They were used before at Sonoma Gutierrez. Finishes are typically completed in barrels that came from somebody else and have been used before. So in the development of Double Oaked, we have created the first and only whiskey in the world finished in a barrel made specifically for it, by it. 
having our own brown foreman cooperage has allowed us to make a second barrel, brand new, charred on the inside to finish wood reserve specifically. And that took two years to develop. And we take fully mature Woodford, finish it in the second barrel for up to a year, as Elizabeth said, and we have double oaked. It's the only whiskey in the world, Scotch, Irish, Japanese, you name it, the only whiskey in the world that has been in two barrels, the original and the finished barrel, that were both new, made for it by its own its own cooperage. That's unique. And as Elizabeth said, we're in that second barrel for approximately one year for the Wood Reserve Double Oaked. Double, double, we go two years, and the flavor changes. But it's, a, it's the same barrel for two years. We, yes, you don't leave the barrel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that. I think there's a misconception that yes. there's two barrels. Yes. No. And then, we, yes, we have gone three years. We have gone four years. And is it treble double? Is it quadruple double? What we're going to call it? But we have decided that that flavor profile gets a little too intense, a little too far afield from what we want. And we have decided that double double is as far as we go. So we continue to experiment. You may have said this, and I apologize if you did. I was distracted because somebody had a question online, and like I was like trying to get it over here. But somebody was asking, "Is there two different type of char levels?" On oh, the, each barrel? Yes. Yes. So. You didn't say it, did you? No. No. He great. Didn't say it. All right, sweet. Well, you're going to hear it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also what makes it so great. And the fact that we have our own cooperage so we can build our own barrels. I always jokingly call it couture barreling because we're making barrels specifically for each brand. And so with the, with double oaks, you know, we start out, we have our Woodford Reserve uh, Distiller Select Barrel, which is going to be a nine month seasoning. We do a 10 minute toast and a 25 second char on that barrel. Then, and that's aged five to seven years. Then we go into our double oaked barrel. The double oaked barrel has the nine month seasoning, a 40 minute toast and a five to 10 second char. So we're flash charring as we like to call it. But what we're doing is a long toasting process, which gets into the lignin layer of the wood, which is where a lot of the vanillin lives. So when you nose double oaked, you get those the vanillin? buttery notes. What's vanillin? Vanillin. 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 Van- oh, vanillin. Okay, vanillin, sorry. Vanilla, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm, I'm an idiot. I just, <laughs> that's why I ask questions. <laughs> um, so that that's kind of where you get all those really, really sweet aromatic notes. And um, you're going to find that with double oaked, you, you, you get the color too. So it's mm-hmm. really getting... So Elizabeth, you... And- Chris, this is going to be exciting conversation, probably just for the two of us here on the on this. We'll start one over here. <laughs> but, <laughs> so how you doing? Was the yeah, we'll just chat. <laughs> but you you talked about how you're the only distillery that has their own cooperage. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, of our size. If you want to go there. Well, no, no, I no, I mean <laughs> Elizabeth's on our side. <laughs> yeah, you guys have your conversation over there. So that story starts in like the 1940s. <laughs> When there's a lot of these acquisitions going on from uh, the larger uh, parent companies of the time, National, Shinley, Seagram's, Seagram's, a lot of these kind of companies. Brown Foreman, instead of those companies were out there acquiring distilleries that could not meet the mandates for making uh, uh, alcohol for the war effort. Instead of chasing that carrot, instead of chasing those distillers, to buy independent distillers, they were purchasing cooperages. And when they did that, they kind of got themselves lumped in. 150 years. 
were going on Brown Foreman. It just it was like it was like one of these brilliant business moves mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s. And then they later acquired a little company called Jack Daniels. Yep. You know, I mean, so there's like all this so unique smart. uh business acumen within Brown Foreman. And I always like when I hear you all talk about like uh, we're the only distillery that has our own cooperage. I think of the guy who was in a boardroom who thought of that. in the 1940s is like, hey, why are we going after distilleries when we can get what everybody needs? And that's the barrel. You know, Fred, that's a good point. I've never really heard that story. And I don't know if Chris, if anybody knows it, Chris would know that story of just because that's probably like the Woodford Reserve story when it, the bourbon's dying is like, hey, we want to acquire, we want to buy a bourbon distillery and start a new brand. And people are like, are you crazy? So I'm sure it's the same kind of thought with our with our cooperage. Well, Fred was that uh, was certainly uh, pointing in the right direction. So coming out of the Second World War, the big distilleries, the big companies, I should say, who had many distilleries, Shinley, Seagram's, National, Glenmore, and others, had their own cooperages, all in Louisville or the Louisville region, and they were making their own barrels. And that meant barrels were hard to come by. There was a fierce demand and therefore a fierce competition for barrels. And small independent companies were having a difficult time. So Owsley Brown the first, the son of our founder, George Garvin Brown, uh, decided, well, we need to have our own cooperage if we're going to survive. And that led to the purchase of a wood-making plant in the Highland Park neighborhood of Louisville that had been making, of all things, plywood for the war effort. And um, it had made rifle stocks. It had, it had been a furniture factory. And we purchased that wood-making plant and converted it to a cooperage. So we were just one of many distilleries at the time that had its own cooperage. So it wasn't abnormal. It wasn't a big deal. It was sort of normal. But it was a step. Yeah. It was a step Something toward new. the direction yeah. that you all became in the yeah. 1950s. You acquired and, Jack Daniels. And then, and then by and large, those big famous distilling companies went out of business their brands were broken up. Their distillers were their distilleries were closed and consolidated, and little old Brown Foreman kept plugging along. And here we are now today, as the only major whiskey company in the world. There are some small companies that make their own barrels, but we're talking tiny, tiny companies. But we make all of our own new barrels, and that has allowed us to expand and develop um, the range of Jack Daniels products, Old Forester. Obviously, Woodford Reserve, the unique barrels that uh, Elizabeth told us about. King of Kentucky, Cooper's Craft. Um, again, it's amazing to think that we're not the biggest whiskey company in the world by any stretch of the imagination. Well, you're but, the top five. But only, but only we make our own barrels. And then when those barrels are sold on the open market, because we use them only once for our products... And certainly Woodford barrels are in high demand. Double oak barrels are in super high demand on the open market from brewers, wineries, tequila producers, rum producers, and whiskey producers of any stripe. That Brown Foreman supplies annually half the used barrels to the world. Wow. So there's not a scotch whiskey. There's probably not a rum, tequila, etc. that doesn't have a little Woodford Reserve 
ground foam and flavor in it years from now as they age their products. Mm-hmm. So our flavor is is very much in demand. So that's a that's actually pretty awesome because you, you got some history there. And I kind of want to even bring the history up just a, a little bit to today as we start to kind of close this out. And Fred sort of jumped the gun a little bit because we are, we poured some of this King of Kentucky and Fred and myself, we were at the, the media gathering for it. We got to be there with you as you kind of gave us a breakdown of the history and really what this means as Brown Formats coming out with a new product. So I kind of want you to talk a little bit about what is, and, and, and I guess just give like a 30 second overview of like, what is King of Kentucky? Most of the whiskey geeks out here already know what it is, but kind of talk about what the future of this product line is going to be as well. Well, we want to be transparent about the King of Kentucky. And, the, and you guys remember, we told we told everyone, we're very proud of it. This this new make began as early times. It's, it's 79% corn, 11% rye, 10% malt, early times yeast. If we bottled it at four years old, it would have been early times. Hold it another 10 years, it becomes something completely different. And holding a barrel that long for us, whether it's Woodford Reserve, early times, Old Forester, is extremely special because we heat cycle our warehouses. And you can virtually double double the age. When Elizabeth said we're making Woodford Reserve from five, six, seven, eight-year barrels batched together, that's 10, 12, 14-year-old barrels based on the maturation profile. Because heat cycling is an aggressive maturation process that dates back to the 1870s. So King of Kentucky, this 14-year-old bottle, has a 28-year age persona. But it's not 28 years, of course. It's 14 years. So it is chemically, I made sure we analyzed the King, and I showed everyone the, the chemical signature, which is the molecular flavor structure versus early times, four-year-old, 100-proof bottle and bond. And it's completely different. So again, transparent how it was made. Uh, this is um, a re- revitalization or a return of an old label, King of Kentucky, which goes back into the 1880s. Why did you choose this label? Because you guys have a, a plethora of... of fantastic labels and, no, and King of Kentucky. Why not bring was, back marrow? I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. You know, King bone marrow is back in, you know, it's in the bone marrow thing. shots. <laughs> well, there's, there's several reasons. And I'll say the, the most important reason is our colleague who's a, a, a friend of ours and executive of the company, uh, John Hayes said, I like that name. <laughs> and that's a good idea. Um, that's all and, you uh, need to say. Yeah. Right <laughs> but, um, John was, John was early, uh, several years ago, an advocate at that very point, bringing back our historic names. And we do have a lot of historic names from our company. Some maybe not so cool today, like Possum Ridge. Nah, probably pass on that. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I like I don't know man. That sound, that might sell <laughs> yeah. out. That'd be old, hot, hot old Tucker. And of toddies. course, the ever popular Old Brown and Old Foreman. Um but King of Kentucky does that does have a fun story because it's named not after some mythical king of Kentucky. Uh, it's not you know named after did Elvis sleep here um, this weekend. It's named after the the King of Kentucky, which is the sport of kings. It's named after thoroughbred horse racing because 
the owner of the brand back in the 1880s, John G. Roach, also was a thoroughbred breeder. So King really ties into our Woodford Reserve story in one way that it's involved or recognizes the importance of horse racing in Kentucky. I still vote for marrow. <laughs> if we can get a marrow bottle, I'm all over it. Kenny, if I may, if we have more time, if we have a little bit of time. Let's do two minutes. Two minutes. Elizabeth, we like when this as soon as this came out, like, um, you know, as you know, my background, I wrote the book Whiskey Women. Immediately, women wrote me and said, why the king? Oh, gosh. Yeah. There, there was a little bit of that. Yeah. And. Um, oh, boy. Because it's a historical brand. <laughs> oh, boy. It Here was king of Kentucky. But, but eggshells. Where's the, the eggshells? The queen of Kentucky. Historical I'm, I'm reasons don't matter today. Like, I mean, yeah. as you know. Like, yeah. I mean, People shit. care about that, that it was more like, why is it the king? Well, we can come out with the queen of Kentucky. Katie and I can work on that. You better file it now and yes. register before so, somebody else takes it. So, TTB, yeah. here we come. Here comes the queen of Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey, yeah. maybe we'll get all the ladies of Brown Foreman together and we'll come out with the queen. I, I, I implore that. And then I would actually say that, like, uh, Brown Foreman, Kenny, has been one of the great uh, companies for pushing oh, forward yeah. women. Yeah, if anything, Brown Foreman's a company that you know really, really um, highlights women and celebrates and has them. women. Celebrates. I would, I would even thank say you. that's the word I was going for. And celebrate it. Well, it's it's very difficult to. When I was researching this, like, uh, like five years, actually, it's ten years ago now. I was researching whiskey women. Mm -hmm. None of the brands were like, no, we don't have any women, and I would have to like seek them out. Mm -hmm. uh, but Brown Foreman was like. Here's a list of our women. They were very helpful. Yeah. Helpful. Lynn yeah. Tolley, Peggy yeah. Stevens. Oh, yeah. Lynn you know, A lot of these great women, uh, Brown Foreman was very excited to share them with me. Well, if I may, Fred, and I want to, I'm saying this quite proudly, Elizabeth and Katie aren't where they are because they're women. They're, they're great at what they do. They're professionals. They're experts. They happen to be women, just like you and I happen to be men but they're experts and highly qualified at what they do. So they just happen to be who they are. And that's what we need to celebrate and recognize. And, and then that's part of it, right? Like mm -hmm. it's not it's not a matter of just giving people roles because of their gender or race or whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it's a matter of like doing it because they deserve it. Yes. Yeah. But, but, it's, but at the same time, it's so white guy doesn't, dismiss them i think that's what we have to work on is that is like chris like you know you 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 come from a time with in, in the in the distilling business where people were dismissing people oh yeah just was. because they were women no. and i and i think that's yes. where we have to get is yeah. we ignore we we move yeah. past that we look for I look forward to the point when it's no longer, so you're a woman in this industry, tell me about that. That's the question I get all the time. And it's like, how about I'm just a person in this industry? But it, but it's gonna take us a while to get there. And I've recognized the fact that I am a woman in the industry and that's a significant difference. And I will tell you everything that I do, like with my Bourbon and Beyond programming mm -hmm. and the Hometown Rising, and, and I try to include people without saying like, oh, hey, look, it's a woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hi, look. It's an African-American person. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. I want to include them as if they're Good. supposed to be there. Yeah. 
but but there is significance in in us being there because we are at a turn of times. You know, time is changing, and there was once a time when that wasn't the case. So we do need to celebrate and acknowledge that. But I do look forward to the next generation where it's just the norm. You know, yeah. But let's don't forget, we're very. I know we're very proud that Elizabeth's mother worked at Seagram's, and my mother worked at Brown Foreman. So we did have we had mentors or yeah. or or. Um, inspiration from our own mothers in the industry. They just weren't up and up in front of people like uh, we're able to do, be today. They weren't on podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> no. Bourbon has no. always no. weird. How weird. Chris's weird. blood. <laughs> this is true, though, actually. Yeah. I got a question kind of as we wrap things up, too. So, like, I envision this, like, transition. Why wrap things up, though? We're well, having a great we, time. I guess we don't have to wrap things Well, not wrapping things up. I have a question. Uh, so, like, I kind of envision this, like, like Chris's coach Cal or, you know, like a legendary coach, like somebody that <laughs> you never want to be the person that follows the legend or whatever. Scott, I'm Scotty Davenport. Or, yeah, exactly. So like talk about that. And like, is there any pressure or like sense of like, okay, you know, this is Chris and I got to, you know, replace the great legend and how, how difficult is that? Or is that wear on you at all? That That's a really good question. And actually when I first started training under Chris, I talked with, um, one of our executives within kind of R&D, and I had this conversation. I was like, he's Chris Morris. Like, I will never be Chris Morris. I won't ever have um, the same derived passion. Like, he, his extensive history knowledge is so much more. I love history, but his knowledge is so much. It's just we're different people. And I also was like, he knows so much, and I I can't possibly. And it's like, he, he said to me, he goes, you know, Elizabeth, do you think Chris Morse, you know, he's been in the industry, well, now going on 40 plus years, but at the, t- you know, he's like, when he first started out, do you think he knew all the things he knows? And I was like, you're right. I don't think he did. So it gave me the courage to know I have a lot to learn. And that's why I take a lot of pride in the fact of the assistant piece. And I still have so much to learn. 40 plus years in the industry. I hope to have be where he is one day in 40 years. you reached years. a level where you but can I yell think, at him like he did at Lincoln? But Chris, <laughs> you know, do, really do like, you... Nope, you don't got any more, Chris. I mean, I'll tell it. I give him my honest opinion. You know, I don't... I'm not, like, afraid to be like, Chris. She smacks me around. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. We have good a good... Um, we work well together. Chris, and you know, it's fun. It's an interesting age gap, too. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because, like, Chris did not come up the same route as you. Yeah. Um, he was... He, he was with a, uh, a very popular company called United Distillers, mm-hmm. now known as Diageo. Mm-hmm. And he had several different titles there. Then he went to Glenmore and mm-hmm. then Brown Foreman. Or I may have that mixed, mixed up a little bit in the timeline of the Chris Morris biography. But he was he's not always been with uh, Brown Foreman. So mm-hmm. he's kind of like he's brought himself up the, the bootstraps. a little bit in the bourbon so, industry. <laughs> Like when you got the term master distiller associated to your name, Chris, I'm curious, did you feel comfortable with it? Well, um, so very briefly, I started at Brown Foreman in 1976, working with Lincoln, um, left the company in 86, uh, went to Glenmore. Glenmore is acquired by United Distillers. Can you tell us a story about how you left Brown Foreman? Because I love this story. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story. Everyone loves this. All right, pass me more King Kentucky. <laughs> this is good <laughs> stuff. Join Fred in his cot. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I'm able to say it now. It, it was quite traumatic and painful. Um, the bourbon industry was in free fall. Uh, you, you, we can't. You can't imagine today what it was like. The Brown Foreman distilleries were closed nine months a year, operating three months a year. The Cooperage was shut down. Brown Foreman was buying companies like Hartman Luggage and Lennox Crystal and Gore in China and Care uh, uh, Sharif um, Flatware, diversifying because bourbon and whiskey were dying. And the company had to cut back on its work staff and it cut back on its production work staff. If your distilleries closed nine months a year, you don't need everybody. And a group of us young supervisors were let go. Uh, I'd like to say not for, for performance, but we just had to be let go. And fortunately, one individual, Buddy Thompson, bless his heart, who I'm yeah, so, so close to, uh, Buddy Thompson was expanding Glenmore. And I was hired at Glenmore, which was just awesome and a great experience. And the United Stillers bought Glenmore because Glenmore was doing so well. And um, off we go. But when I left Glenmore, uh, excuse me, United Distillers in 97, as I returned to Brown Foreman, uh, I was the, I can't remember exactly how long, but I was the newly minted master distiller for United Distillers. Nobody knows that. We don't talk about it. Uh, Ed Foote uh, they, was uh, bourbon, Citra Weller. Uh, Dave Backus was, had been uh, George Dickel. And I became the master distiller for United Distillers. And so coming back to Brown Foreman, I had to sort of start all over again to be trained in the Brown Foreman way, which was cool. But I was very comfortable with the, with the title because I'd already gotten it at United Distillers. And um, who doesn't have a master distiller any longer? Who uh, <laughs> doesn't exist because it's part of Diageo. You're and glad they didn't have criteria back then? For yeah, there was no criteria. No. <laughs> So, um, as life presents itself, you just go with the flow, and that's what was going on. So, it was very, if you visit my office at Brown Foreman, you'll see my business cards. I have them framed Master Distiller, I.W. Harper, Master Distiller, George Dickel. You know, brands that you don't want to buy today because um, <laughs> I'm no longer there. But uh, I was it, like, ooh, shots fired. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> it, was, it was a great experience, it was an awesome experience. But um, it, it helped develop me for my current position. And I'm able to pass along those learnings to Elizabeth and, and to Katie and others. So uh, our life is a set of experiences that you need to hopefully benefit from. And I sure did. This has been great because we've, we've now taken it back from where we started asking, what is the master distiller to you? And then going all the way to really how you got to where you are today and it's it's the whole evolution of the journey and so we've it's been a been a real pleasure to have both of you on today because we got a lot of insight into the distilling techniques you know we've got the master distiller we got the assistant master distiller if they open up a job description or a job opening you know you can be assistant to the master distiller or assistant you know, to the assistant this would be a you great know? time to ask them if we could do a pursuit series with them you know <laughs> one of these days let, let, let us do our own barrel with them one of these days <laughs> yeah but i, I abstain from that i'm not a part yes, of that exactly but you know i want to say thank you again for coming on the show today it was a pleasure and thank you also to down one bourbon bar for hosting us here today yeah this, this is great been awesome it's been a great whoop, whoop. great avenue i bet the blake shelton people love us oh yeah absolutely 
like Shelton's tonight. Yeah, I know. We're <laughs> right, the real show. Right, right across the street. Yeah. But again, thank you all so much. And if you, if I know that you're on Instagram, so if, if people want to follow you, how do they, how do they get a hold of you, or how can they kind of see what you're up to in your daily life? Gosh, it's Elizabeth <laughs> underscore O'Neill underscore McCall. Hashtag it's blessed. Hashtag <laughs> blessed. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you, Chris. All so you don't have an Instagram yeah, account. You on? Chris doesn't where, do where, social where's your media. Social? Where's your social? Follow? He relies on me. I had. To I'll come over and I'll hook you up. Selfie. Okay. I've known Chris for a long time. It's probably best. He's down on social media. <laughs> I, I'll tell you my telegraph address at some yeah. point. Your Morse code, I'll, oh, yeah. I'll there it is. I'll tap two dots, uh-huh. one dash, three. No, okay. Although I think I think you would really be good on social media because you don't mind getting in the muck with people. You don't like telling someone just don't sucks. do it after midnight. You know that's why I'm not on social media. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps himself I, out I, honestly like and, Ryan Kinney um that's why I have a, a great respect for uh, Chris is I've asked him questions over the years of numerous people or whatever. And, and he will tell you, like, they suck. They're great. This is why they're this. They're, that's why that is no good. I mean, he, he gives you the honest opinion. And you can find that, like, um, in people who are, you know, brave enough to quote Chris at times. Well, next time we're gonna make them make a list. Please don't of, tell me I suck. I have a, <laughs> I have a like a really bad. I'm, I'm, oh, he's I'm told me I suck before, so like I've quoted that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I kid. He, he like actually I said, never next said. time. Next time we're gonna get this list, and he's gonna go over who sucks and who doesn't. But you know, is Chris again, comfortable? Well, we, no. With our other Chris, Chris Pointer, is he over here looking at us, and I don't think we're going to do that. No. <laughs> Probably not. No. Is he a PR guy? <laughs> he's, he's like, no, get he, off, yeah, get he's, off. The P- he's the PR guy. Cut the mic. Uh, cut the mic. <laughs> Brad Foreman. All right, so let's go ahead. Let's wrap this up. Thank you all once again. Uh, thank you. Thank, and thank you once again to Down One Bourbon Bar yeah. for hosting us today. You make sure you follow not only us, Bourbon Pursuit, at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as Fred Minnick on all those channels, but also follow Down One Bourbon Bar. Uh, Support us on Patreon and yeah, wrap it up. I can't wait to sit up straight. I've been hunching over, like, cause nice. Kenny's like, got to talk in the mic, but uh, that's why I grabbed the mic. I know, smart. Mm-hmm. Kenny doesn't let me. Fred, you're like a claimed writer, so you get to do whatever you want. So, but anyways, thanks to Down One, this is awesome. Like, huge, like, step up for us. I mean, this is really cool. Uh, you know, very I'll humble say this: to be it's, here. Because, it's because the podcast has earned it you know i'm i just i just want to say this straight up it's like what you two all have done in the last few years has been remarkable it's been a real pleasure for me to join it and, thanks fred and i gotta tell you like, i was afraid chris was gonna tell us to suck and now you're yeah. you know, <laughs> pumping me up we're gonna take so. you off our suck list yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, i'll just say that like i can't think of a better two guests to like start our life oh yeah this was we were. I was because surprised Elizabeth, they said yes. Elizabeth so like, is amazing, right. but Chris, I don't care what you say about him. Chris is one of my mentors in life. Thank you. Not just bourbon, but mm-hmm. you're you're a you're a friend to me, and you are a mentor in in uh, in life as well as whiskey. And I've spent a lot of time with you in a diff, a lot of different places, and my respect for you is. Through the roof. So thank you, Fred. I'm I'm thankful that you came on to be with us in our first segment. No. Oh uh, yeah. For we, life, we, being live. We're honored, Elizabeth and I. 
definitely to be your first guest on this new format. That that is is truly an honor. And we, we appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all again in the future. And yeah. obviously, you're always welcome to visit us at Woodford Reserve. And, we'll uh, take you up on it. Let's do a personal selection. Let's get it going. Come let's on. Let's do it. Hey, right. I'm, we're in. Hey, be careful. I'll, I'll show up tomorrow. Like <laughs> I'll pop in like, I'm here. Katie's, Katie's working tomorrow. We're, we're off. You made like like a, a two second mention of that and Chris clued onto it. I know. I, I had to get sneak it in. I had motive. Sorry, but uh, no. Thanks, guys, for Thank spending you. your Friday evening with us, and thanks to everyone that tuned in. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks to Down One, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.